let's throw some shrimp on the Barbie. <laughs> what? I don't know. It's an expression. I. It is an expression, I guess. If you were wanting to barbecue crustaceans. Were, are shrimp crustaceans? Yeah. Cool. Aren't they? Yes. I'm not sure. Well, there's a... I, this is my... Shrimp is a thing you can eat. And if you want to eat something, you might barbecue it. And so if you want to throw some shrimp on the Barbie... You shouldn't eat shrimp. Okay. Do you know how many many pounds of of fish that they sweep up and kill for every pound of shrimp? I do not know the answer to that. It it was like 100 to 1 at one point. Really? Yeah, I mean, it's a But isn't the answer to that to also use the fish? They they don't. They can't. They Why not? Usually put them back overboard. There isn't something to do. You could In fact, do with it sets up a a very common pattern of conflict among fishery users. Because mm. like one type of fisher person will you know like a red snapper fisher the red snapper fisheries like injured by shrimping and. You but know. maybe they're. But why can't they coordinate so that they can catch and use all the things that they could use? Well, the boats aren't set up for that. I mean, the boats are set up for one kind of. But you could coordinate that. So that you I have could, no idea. You could like co-fish. So I, I that, think, yeah, I'm, I'm not right? an expert in, in fishing operations. I mean, well, I have studied the red snapper fishery. There you were complaining ago. about it. Well, Didn't I, stop you from complaining. I, I'm not complaining. I'm just saying that for whatever reason, this idea, that, this obvious idea that you have has not been tried out in the fisheries. Story of my life. <laughs> I, I'm suspecting because it is not feasible. Mm. I, I don't think no one ever thought, hey, what if we use these fish rather than sweep them overboard dead? But that's an interesting, I mean, feasibility, like, okay, fees, saying something's not feasible just means that as things are currently arranged, we can't get a price that would fund this approach. So maybe there's a new way to do things that would fund that approach. Yeah, but it also, I think, has to do with the amount that you catch, right? I mean, so if you sweep in a whole bunch of red snapper, with the shrimp, like it's like half shrimp, half red snapper, then what you say might make sense. You would have to maybe change the boat configuration or something. But I don't think that's the way it works. It's like but a whole bunch of different kind of fish. You'd have to sort through them. It'd be some, it, like it wouldn't be enough to be, a, to probably make it worth your while. It's my guess. Now, again, Joe, as you know, I'm not a professional fisherman. Be a great opportunity to find some way to make, rather than just turning all those other fish into garbage by killing them and then throwing them back, uh, it would be nice to, find some w- other way they could be used. Yeah, but then you'd have to have space and, you know, you fill up the boat with shrimp, I guess is what these shrimpers do, right? That's how they make their money. They fill up their boat. So you'd have to like use more gas, get another, like maybe trail another boat. I, I don't guess, even know what I guess, I, you know, I, I just, just someone work it out. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, I think whatever. if there were, th- there is definitely a financial incentive to use these so-called junk fish, but it has not been enough. I, but again, Joe, so I, you claim. I just want to clarify, I am not a professional fisherman. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you know uh, this. So we're going to we're going to dial up uh Yeah, who who, who am here? I supposed to call? Who am I calling today? His name is Paul Gowder. Okay. The professor at the University of Iowa Law School. All right. Hello. Paul. Hey, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. This is Christian. Hello. So, uh we on our show have a, a delightful habit of guessing incorrectly about how people pronounce their family name. So it's Gowder, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. It's like Chowder, but with a G. Excellent. So it's Gowder. <laughs> <laughs> if you're in Australia, maybe. Or Bostonian. That's, yeah, oh, yeah, it Chowder. Was a, it was a Boston Gowder. Reference. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> nice. And with a name like, you know, with Paul, it does, it, it fits, right? Yeah. Oh. Paul Gowder. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> love it. Oh my god. Uh, now you sound like you're British a little bit. So my mother's British. Bizarrely, I picked up a bit of the accent from her, despite the fact that I was born in New Mexico and grew up in LA. Um, I have no idea. How, I, I sort of have an idea how that happened when I was a very small child and that learning language phase my father was in the air force and was posted away to alaska mm. so my mother was the only one around talking to me and it just stuck for some reason interesting where in new mexico uh clovis oh i know clovis yeah yeah, yeah out in the desert yeah well all of new mexico is out in the desert but but uh yeah <laughs> you make a good point yeah driven through clovis a few times and, and well i was gonna say paul's got that classic la new mexico hybrid accent <laughs> yeah, it is, I definitely do drop LAisms with the British accent all the time. It's very confusing to other people, I think. Well, here's it's very good, however, for intimidating customer service representatives over the <laughs> telephone. It does. It do, it does. Um, and, and talking to you for the first time does put your um your your tweets against uh, United Airlines in a new light. <laughs> <laughs> A United Airlines customer service representative can't be intimidated in any form because their company, I'm pretty sure they're rewarded for making people miserable. Oh, boy. So, um, so I've got one final test uh, in, in the nonsense segment of our show, mm. uh, which oftentimes will just go for the whole show. So yeah, there's, not a clear, there's not a clear demarcation here, Paul. So, uh, yeah, this is this is the show. But um, – if if I were suppose that I were I were lost and I were around Clovis and I and I wanted to get to L.A. and so I needed to get to Interstate Forty, and and you were to give me directions. <laughs> so when I say born in Clovis, I do mean born. Okay. As in, I was there for about three weeks. But if you were going to tell me like what I need to do is to drive on Interstate Forty to. Um, uh, to LA, like I need to get there and they need to drive on it. Would you say, how would you say it? Would you say take Interstate 40 or would you say take the 40? I'd say take the 40. The I'm 40. actually from LA. There yeah. you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, I was trying, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't quite tee it up in the right way, but I, I that's what I wanted to get at. And that remains, uh, that remains true uh, really at the top of the coast as well. For example, you, in, in Portland, people regularly say take the five. Yeah. Really? Or that's the I five. They, but no one would say take Interstate five. That's crazy. So in the the thing that really creeps me out is in the Bay Area, people just drop the the. So they'll say, you know, take five. And that just, <laughs> I, I don't get it. They're not real Californians. Well, in the East Coast, I think they just say, like, take I-26. That's where I grew up in South Carolina. People say, right, so yeah. there's no V. They but there is an I. Yeah, they, they just drop the article, like like Paul says they do in the but Bay Area. With, but then by including the I. So you would say... When I where I grew up, it was you would say take I ninety five or take I eighty four. Yeah, there you right? go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, rather than the ninety five or the eighty four. I'm a big fan of the the. There's a lot of backlash against the the huh. from people. I've seen this people on Twitter like just, really? just lambasting <laughs> the LAism, and, and I think it's a way of like resisting the creeping LA, LAism of, of. But it's West, West Coastism. Coast. Well, it's not so, just LAism. Well, but that's this is what I'm not clear about. I wonder if there are West Coast cities where there is a where there is you know it, it's like that transition point where there are some people. Who, who routinely say the the mm. and other people who hate the the probably because of an L.A. like 
you know, uh, an anti-LA bias. That's what I'm. That's my right. guess. I'm, I'm just trying to map the cultural landscape here in my mind with no data, well, mm. other than having yeah, lived there. Yeah, there's definitely a transitional zone between LA and the Bay Area. So I would go down to San Luis Obispo or something and just start listening to people <laughs> and see what happens. This could be an empirical project. I, for we could get who this funded. Never wants to publish. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so here's another question: If we're if we're going to plumb the uh, the contours of various West Coast speech habits, uh, so uh, Paul, if if someone were to say, uh, if someone uh, presented an option that was very expensive, and you wanted to uh, tut tut this option uh, with a word that ends in Y. Uh, a two-syllable word that ends in oh, Y. This is, this is too uh, much. This is which too much word would you? Which word would you use? Everybody knows this now. I mean, I would just go seriously, personally. But... <laughs> no, 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 no. It's got to be two syllables. It's going to be either oh. spendy or pricey. Oh. Um, and in, 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 in Portland, uh, to my shock, uh, they say spendy. Yeah, I learned this on my first my Not first trip. pricey. My first trip to the Cascades. Um, I don't think I've ever said either. We learned spendy from from people like in the mountains and in the Cascades. Yeah, and, and that it was, and it was a Northwest thing. I didn't, and I started saying it a little bit. Like it's like it's easy, spendy. Yeah, yeah spendy. well, I lived there long enough to pick it up as the natural. I mean, you want to be understood, right? So if people there say spendy, you say spendy. I mean, it seems to me a more reasonable description. I mean, pricey. Yes, I I grew up with that. You know, pricey yeah. is expensive. But, but Paul just but pricey kind of a... means full of price, whereas spendy means full of spending, and the latter seems to describe my experience hmm. when I'm buying yeah. something the expensive. The other thing is, you just can't generalize from Portland, right? So Portland is a cultural place all on its own. I've actually seen. This is one of the proudest moments of my life, as oh, I boy. was in the Hawthorne district, and I saw the guy who dresses up as Darth Vader riding around on the unicycle. Nice. That is actually a thing in Portland, and I saw him in real life. <laughs> That's great. Is that like seeing the naked cowboy in Times Square in New York? Yeah. <laughs> it really is. I've, I've been through Portland. I've never spent any time there. I mean, I've yeah, been through there, you know, picking people up from airports and driving people back and yeah. forth and, on trips, but I've never, like, stayed in Portland. But I liked Paul's very uh, contemptuous, uh, you know, option of seriously. That was, uh, <laughs> I liked that. That was very good. Well, sh- speaking of seriously, should we get into anything serious? I I, we don't have to. I mean, it's up to Paul, I guess. I mean, I'm happy to keep So, Paul, chatting. the paper caught my eye because um, I'm a fan of your book, which I've been working through. And uh, so, so the, I know that the, the paper sort of takes – the, some of the argument of the book or maybe the outcome of the book and sort of lays that down as a marker for a way to understand the rule of law and then goes in a bunch of other um, directions uh, based on this, this use of, of technology in law. So was this a conference? Was Albert Yoon at this conference? Wait, can yeah. we? When you, you set a bunch of stuff up, but like what is the... We're going to get there. Oh, okay. I just want to lay the uh, context for it. So the paper, because it looks like the paper was written in conjunction with with a conference at Toronto, and there's a few papers in this issue of the University of Toronto Law Journal uh, that that look at this issue. And it looks like one of the attendees was Frank uh, Pasquale, friend of the show, and uh, Albert Yoon, who's never been on the show, but is a friend that we both know. Um, So so tell us about this conference that produced the paper. Yeah, so this is really interesting. So I've been sort of pushing into a technology direction recently 
And so I've, you know, I've been to a few conferences and I got this invitation by Simon Stone, who was organizing this conference at Toronto. And I thought okay, of the show. this was a good excuse to, 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 to take some of this rule of law work that I'm doing and actually connect it directly to these technology things that I've been, I mean, I've been thinking like a lot about technology in general and legal technology. There were periods probably where I've gone over the last couple of years for a couple of months and have written more code than prose, mm. um, just to give you an idea of where I am. Um, yeah, so, you know, they invited me to this conference and I just took it as an opportunity to take some of these rule of law ideas and really run with them in the technology context. So what's surprising as someone who, for me, in reading your paper uh, having uh, and, and grappling with your book at the same time, which is this fantastic book, Rule of Law in the Real World, that everyone should read, um, but but the you're very clear up front and throughout the book about the fact that you're focusing on rule of law as a as an approach that constrains states that constrains the state as an actor and you take this turn in this paper to say well well actually there's a private power concern that might rise to the level of state power concern uh, and those legal technology discussions are in the context of private law and private power quite frequently. And so you, you're sort of making this jump into – so could we talk about this sort of – Oh, yeah. You know, why, why did you focus the book on state power and why do you now say, well, maybe the rule of law is also a way to think about private power? Yeah, I mean, the short version is I think I was a little bit wrong there in the book. Um, this is actually one of the two things – so a little bit of background, I guess, on the book in case anybody um, who's listening to this podcast hasn't heard of it. The rule of law in the real world really tries to give this like egalitarian account of what this rule of law ideal is. Um, but so there are two things that I get beat up about all the time um, in the book. The first thing is this really aggressive conception of what I call generality, that is the idea that there's this requirement of substantive legal equality built into the rule of law. And that one I'm defending still. I'm not letting that one go. I just There was a roundtable in the St. Louis University Law Journal recently where basically my response to critics was just to aggressively defend that for 30 more pages. Um, <laughs> so, so, Paul, so, Paul, you... Um, in a way, I think the approach, at least as I, I have not read the book yet, but it strikes me as um, like Lon Fuller-like, which explains why, partly explains why Joe is so into it, I think. Uh, <laughs> but, but you do set out these, uh, in in the paper, you, you in summarizing, you set out these kind of three criteria for what would make, you know, these res- uh, w- uh, w- the con- for the content of the rule of law, like what it has to be. And as you say, one of them is generality, that the, the laws apply generally to everyone equally. That's That's the... That's why equality and generality are are tied together in your mind, right? Yeah, exactly. And I have a really aggressive conception of generality. I mean, basically, I try to make the concept of generality do a lot of substantive egalitarian work, um, regulate, basically, to the very least ground, pretty much all of contemporary equal protection doctrine, and probably some more things in addition. The other thing that people have criticized me for a lot that I'm rolling back 
um, at least a little bit, is the idea that the rule of law as an ideal really only applies to states. And so the reason that I have that I made that claim in the first place, and I still think that this reason is correct, I just think I might have overstated it a little bit, is because there's a lot of pernicious stuff that happens. And this is where the Falerians, I think, get it wrong. Um, there's a lot of pernicious consequences to saying that ordinary people in their day-to-day lives have to be regulated by the rule of law. Essentially, you get out of that Ridiculous things like critiques of nonviolent civil disobedience are the most obvious example. There are this collection of critiques of Martin Luther King from the civil rights period and this incredible sanctimonious rule of law tone that I just find, frankly, nauseating, but that seemed to come from this idea that ordinary citizens have some kind of moral obligation similar to that of the state, to conform their conduct to the rule of law. And so that, that's something that I've been motivated to regret. But as I've thought more about kinds of organized hierarchical power separate from the state, it seems to me now that I can say that these kinds of organized hierarchical but non-state powers can at least to some extent be governed by the rule of law without falling down the slippery slope and saying, and by the way, also, we have an objection to Martin Luther King. Well, I think, I, I mean, I think it's, uh, I'm, I'm first very glad to hear that you are uh, holding uh, the line, at least at the moment, on, on the generality uh, principle and and its uh, rigors and demands. That, that sounds to me, that's one of the more interesting features of your approach. So it would be it would be a pity to see that go. Uh, more, and and on the second point about the fact that there can be um, uh, aggregations of private power that rival public power, and therefore might raise the same concerns about the uh, circumstances under which coercion uh, is is exercised uh, and visited upon uh, much less powerful individuals. Uh, I mean, I think that's just. I think there are just a lot of examples, including some from important uh, legal decisions. Um, uh, Marsh against Alabama, the company town case. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you think about Shelley against Kramer uh, and uh, the need to uh, look at those uh, private contracts uh, uh, creating a, a, a segregated uh, property system uh, and the the fact that the the court is essentially, I think, trying to uh, prevent people from doing a private end run around the the public problem solved in the earlier case of Buchanan against Worley. Um, I mean, I, it's just we just have lots of examples of private power coming to pose the same problems of of unfair uh, uh, and and arbitrary coercion. Uh, and and given that the rule of law tools of generality and uh, excuse me of a uh, of publicity and regularity, and then generality. Uh, Those are the three. Yeah, so, that you yeah. can do so much with that that to 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 create a a distinction between state uh, constraining the state and constraining private actors in a way that would prevent you from getting the benefits of the rule of law in instances where it really seems like it is needed um, would be unfortunate. I think so. I, yep. So in this well, paper, where you make that turn, I thought, oh, that's really that's really interesting. 
but I don't want to push it too fast, so I don't want to make it that much of a turn. Um, and the reason is because I still think that the state is the core case. And um, so this is actually something else that came up again in the St. Louis University Law Journal Roundtable that I mentioned a few minutes ago. I had this really interesting exchange with Colleen Murphy, who, by the way, you should totally have on your show if you haven't had, speaking of Valerians, and she's just, you know, incredibly brilliant. Um, but so she objected uh, essentially to my account in the book of Jim Crow and of the claim that, you know, we can really see the rule of law as a constrainer of state power. Um, being a useful way of understanding what went wrong in Jim Crow. And, you know, she points out, but of course, one of the key features of Jim Crow is this massive system of private lynchings is, you know, do we have something that we can say about the Klan from a rule of law standpoint? And at that point, I actually want to resist the extension of the rule of law to private activity as such. And the reason that I want to resist that is just because it, in that case, thinking about the rule of law in terms of private activity conceals something important about the state's culpability, right? We talk about the rule of law in Jim Crow if we say, well, clearly the Klan should have conformed its behavior to the law and not done all those lynchings. I mean, yes. But by talking about the rule of law in that context, we eliminate or we make it a lot harder to see the culpability of the state in refusing to enforce the law equally against black criminals and white criminals, better known as the, you know, white criminals doing the lynching. Um, and so I still think that the involvement of the, 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 the thing about these private corporations, right? The thing about Comcast and Verizon, just as about Marsh versus Alabama and Shelley versus Kramer and so forth, is there is still this involvement of the state and of the kinds of powers deployed by the state, right? I mean, you know, these these um, hierarchically empowered private entities are still making use of, if nothing else, private law. Um, the, you know, the, 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 the power conferring rules that Hart talked about. Right. But there, which, it, yeah. It, yeah, isn't there, there is always the involvement or non-involvement of the, of the state. I mean, the state is always involved in the sense that it provides either enforcement or non-enforcement of uh, relations among private parties. Right. And, you know, it, my preferred approach is to, is to think of all of these groups as cooperative groups. Uh, regulated by various forms of what you might call the rule of law. Like there's a rule of law of corporations and corporation citizen interactions. There's a rule of law of families. There's a rule of law of of municipal governments. Uh, there's a rule of law of, you know, what you would call the core case of, of a, maybe a nation state. But but all of these are like, you know, we are involved in all of these different kinds of webs of coercion, mm-hmm. um, s- some of which are purely private. Yeah, I'm reminded, like, you know, probably my favorite podcast right now is Roadwork with Dan Benjamin and, and John Roderick. Have you ever heard this, Joe? No. Yeah. Um, John Roderick, you know, singer in the Long Winters, songwriter, provocateur, interesting guy. Mm-hmm. And I, I always hesitate to recommend it because every time I listen to a single episode, I'm like, if I recommended this to someone, would they get it? Like, no, you got to listen to a bunch of them. <laughs> you it's, you, you kind of have to, like, get to know John Roderick a little bit. And he also does um, uh, that uh, the podcast with uh, Merlin Mann. 
um, Roderick, on the, Roderick on the line. And I, 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 I think I like Roadwork better because it's just it's more of John monologuing, and hmm. it's it's a really fascinating podcast. But you do have to listen to a bunch of them, I think. Anyway, on the last one, he he uh, relates this. Uh, there was this '80s movie, one of these '80s movies where like a Soviet uh, fighter pilot defects and flies his plane to the United States. Hmm. And lands in the United States and and is being shown around or somehow starts to get out in the United States after defecting and sees all these people like going this way and that way. And he's like in, in the movie and this is all, you know, but in the movie he is um, he, he's amused, befuddled, uh, completely doesn't understand how these people are allowed just to go wherever they want. Like, why isn't there chaos? Like, why do they? <laughs> You know, how can they, you know, why is that we, if people, if people can go wherever they want, why are they just not, you know, how can you count on anything getting done? And, um, and the, the way John Roderick put it in the podcast was really great and captured something here, right? That of course, what he was not seeing, right. Is that all these people, you know, had a mortgage or had credit card debt or had a mm-hmm. father-in-law who was sick or, you know, they're all of these like subtle, invisible, um, uh, yokes that we have, which are pulling us to show up at work, uh, to do something unpleasant, to pay the cable bill, to have the unpleasant call with United Airlines, right? I mean, all of these, you know, our behavior is, um, and this is like the point of legal realists early on, right? Is trying to surface all of these invisible yokes that we wear and say, hey, these are no less, uh, these, these are no less coercive uh, than, the, than the law, which says, you know, in, in kind of Austinian sense, like, if you don't do this, then you will be punished, right? I mean, that there is a kind of punishment which is doesn't seem to be of the state, but which is nonetheless constituted by the state. And that was the legal realist position. That's your position here, really, Paul, right? Oh, like yeah, all, all of these, like AT&T versus Concepcion, though, right? The one that, oh, yeah. like... But we uh, should talk about that, right? So yeah. what, one thing that I'm tempted to say, and this, this should give you an indication that I haven't fully settled on a final sort of conception of how far exactly the rule of law and private interaction goes yet. I mean, that's another paper that I need to write. But what the way I'm thinking right now, and I think it's consistent with this paper, is we still have to actually forefront the role of the state in this as well. I think it wasn't just, okay, you know, AT&T imposed these contracts on people. AT&T was allowed to impose these contracts on people by a distortion of principles of contract law by the state in the form of AT&T versus Concepcion that's really just astonishing from a rule of law perspective. I mean, essentially, you can read this as, and I, I don't want to, I mean, obviously I can't make this equation, but if you think about... And, and just for the listeners act- who don't know, Paul, I mean, AT&T versus Concepcion approves a corporation by contract taking away your class action rights by making you arbitrate individually. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so you can see it again as this kind of state abdication, right? So the state says, you know, effectively... We had these egalitarian legal rules before, or at least everybody sort of assumed that we had these egalitarian rules. We had this class action institution, and now we're telling you that we're going to empower certain kinds of hierarchically situated private parties, namely monopolists for essential services or oligopolists for essential services, to write out. To what you know, Margaret Jane Radin in this wonderful book. Oh God, now I'm completely blank. Boilerplate. Boilerplate. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Um, 
what she calls rights deletion. Um, so so the, 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 it's the state that is enabling rights deletion by going along with these demands of AT&T, by going along with all of these claims by these companies to enforce these, frankly, these bullshit contracts that nobody in their right mind would have ever agreed to if they were capable of reading them or if they were, you know, had some conception of the extent to which companies were just nickel and diming them to death or they had any genuine competitive options. And so I think that when we talk about the rule of law, we do need to talk, we, we, we need to have this piece of the state abdicating its traditional rules of contract and tort in favor of these hierarchically empowered actions. And this actually goes back to the old sort of traditional right-wing libertarian rule of law tradition, which is really interesting, right? You know, one of the things that Friedrich Hayek said in talking about the rule of law in law legislation and liberty is one important feature of the common law system was that it was more consistent with the rule of law because it it captured um, some sense of what people expected society to be like. like. It was more predictable and more capable of people operationalizing to carry out their ends because the common law is supposed to conform to social norms in a way that other kinds of legislation don't. And so to say that the you know Supreme Court abandoned the sort of basic ideas of the common law to allow companies to, without anything approaching real consent, just run around deleting important procedural rights is a really important piece of how these kinds of power relationships that violate the rule of law get formed. And in, the, in terms of your three principles of of regularity and publicity and generality, what is it about the this kind of arrangement um, allow this powerful monopolist or oligopolist to delete your rights uh, in a contract of adhesion? What part of those three is it? Is it which one of them is it failing, or which ones of are if it's failing more than one? Um, I would say that it most naturally fits into the notion of publicity in this context. You know, one of the key ideas of publicity as a rule of law principle is that the law has to actually be practically operationalizable by ordinary people, and particularly it has to be practically operationalizable in the form of collective action. Um, You know, one of the core claims of the book is that the way that the powerful particularly states, of course, but even the powerful in general, are actually constrained by the law in basically every realistic society is through the prospect of collective action. And so particularly when we think of AT&T versus Concepcion, right, the class action is this brilliant invention for collective action. It's, you know, one of the few tools that we actually have in this our legal system that for all of its costs is genuinely effective at forcing hierarchically empowered people, forcing the wealthy and the powerful 
forcing monopolists and oligopolists to conform their conduct to the law by, of course, aggregating otherwise economically non-viable private litigation. And so to allow these actors to take away this critical procedural right drastically undermines the capacity of ordinary citizens to make use of the structure of the legal system for collective action. Would it be fair to say it also violates the generality principle in in as much as if the state stands by and allows private contract to accomplish the objective that you just described. Uh, The state is clearly uh, conveying to those less advantaged individuals that that they just count for less in the eyes of the law. Their their interests uh, and and their ability to vindicate their interests is much less important uh, than the interests of the uh, entrenched uh, and powerful uh, to protect themselves from accountability. Uh, that seems to violate the generality principle. I think that's absolutely right. Um, and I actually, so one of the things that doesn't come out as well as I'd like in the book, um, it comes out a little bit, but again, um, I try and flesh it out a little bit more in this response in the St. Louis Law Journal, is that really the, one of the reasons that my sort of aggressive conception of generality needs to be integrated into the overall account of the rule of law is because violations of the other things, violations of regulation, regularity and publicity, um, oftentimes amount to violations of generality as well. And essentially the reason for this is because one way to think about how regularity and publicity themselves are justified is to think about them in terms of generality. That is, generality asks the question, okay, how can we justify all of these inequalities in legal powers? Thinking about the state of the case, right? Like generality asks us, okay, how can we justify the fact that there were people roaming the streets with badges and guns, and those people have the capacity to tell me to do things, and then if I don't do what they tell me to do, I can get thrown into a cell or beaten. Um, and, you know, the answer has to be, in part, regularity and publicity. That is, the fact that these people are constrained by rules, and I can show up in court and challenge their behavior later, and so on and so forth. And I think that we can say the same thing about these kinds of hierarchical power by contract. You know, the only reason that we have to allow the kinds of corporate forms and the kinds of adhesive contracts that we allow is because, in principle, we ought to think that the legal system is going to provide some sort of minimal baseline of regulation on the interactions between these companies and ordinary people that, you know, maintains some kind of minimal um, ability for ordinary people to defend their own interests with respect to them. And when that goes away, it suggests that there's no justification for the underlying distributions enabled by law that put companies like AT&T in an oligopoly position, um, except that, you know, clearly they're just the favorite of the system. Well, so I'm increasingly skeptical these days of, uh, of arguments for, subst- you know, particular settings of substantive rules 
that flow from substance free principles. And, um, and that's a, a oh, function. Well, you must a fun- every, the, the second half of my book. No, no, no. I mean, <laughs> it's a function of, you know, and, and I've been, it's a function partly of the politics these days, right? And the kinds of arguments you can have. So for, in particular, like think about the, uh, the principle of publicity. So, you know, w- one thing that's clear is that, that there's no way that, that people could possibly be informed about all of the rules we actually need for society to function. And, and you know, you're a computer um, person. So you like, you know, it's kind of like, um, uh, you know, class inheritance or protocols or any of these other procedures that allow us to like do like to live and make, you know, in, in computers, make programs despite not knowing all of the details of implementation mm-hmm. behind the scenes. Right. And so there's all kinds mm-hmm. of stuff that like, as you say, one of the virtues of the common law is that oftentimes it kind of comes out how you would expect it would if you really thought about it. Um, yeah. and, and so people like substitute publicity for knowing that resolutions on things they haven't thought about will probably be in accordance with the way that they would have thought it should work if they had thought about it. Right. And, and so that kind of expectation yeah. replaces, uh, publicity. And so to hear, I, you know, I, I wonder if, you know, the, the reason, for example, with, uh, is it generality? I guess that's the principle that you guys were, were talking about with respect to, um, the class action waivers. There's a sense in which everybody's treated the same, of course, right? Whether you are rich or poor, um, uh, big or small, um, you know, a corporation or not a corporation, you know, corporations are people too, I guess. But, no, but even, even if you're not, even if it's just the bosses, right? Everybody's empowered to create contracts with class action uh, arbitration waivers. And, but of course, the critique here is that's not how real life is working, right? Real life is working so as to make these tools powerful in creating new forms of coercion by people who already have uh, capital within the system, and they don't equally respond to the needs of other people. And so because we have a, a, a substantive underlying preference for egalitarianism, or at least for non-suffering, which I think is probably our best, our best ground these days, is mm-hmm. non-suffering, um, we need to allocate these tools in a particular way. And so the, you know, overruling Concepcion, um, um, uh, creating a right of class action, all of these are ways of injecting a particular substantive desire into the law, which is based on a substantive principle, not a general rule of law principle. So what have I, what have I gotten wrong there? Um, so what you've gotten wrong is essentially the injection part, right? So and I think sort of going back, going a little bit further back, the other thing that you've gotten wrong is the idea that we can talk coherently about having a kind of formal legal equality. So my move to get the concept the strong conception of generality out of the rule of law really does depend on being able to reject this idea of formal equality that you can read whether or not people have equal legal rights off of the face of the law of the idea hey you know this contract principle doesn't have any proper names in it um because it doesn't have any proper names in it, or, you know, it doesn't have any what Rawls once called read definite descriptors in it, um, well, then it must be equal. And then the reason that I reject that, I'll give you a sort of very abbreviated version. Um, this is actually something else, strikingly, that I get from Hayek. Um, Hayek, you know, I, I really recommend everybody go back and read Hayek because even though these days he's taken as a sort of poster boy for a kind of weird like Austrian economist libertarianism he had some ideas that are strikingly congenial 
to thinking about egalitarianism. And so one of the questions that Hayek wrestled with, and I think that he got to the point where he realized that, you know, it was hard to come up with a formal conception of equality is sort of equality of what? So think about, just as a, as a thought experiment, think about taxes, right? So suppose there are three possible conceptions of taxation, and then the question that you have to ask is which one of them is formally equal. Right, so conception number one, a capitation tax. So capitation tax, everybody pays $10,000. Right, seems equal in one sense. It's equal in that everybody pays the same amount of money. Um, conception number two, a flat tax, everybody pays 10%. Again, seems equal in a different sense. Everybody pays a percentage. Um, conception number three, of course, the progressive tax where the idea of a progressive tax is we hire a bunch of rogue neuroscientists to hook up monitors to people's brains and detect the amount of the drop in their dopamine levels and tax them so that they have exactly the same drop in their dopamine levels. You know, they experience the same amount of suffering. Of course, you know, the suffering that Bill Gates experiences is going to be associated with a fairly higher percentage of tax than the suffering that I experience at the same degree. Um, which of those is equal? Right? Like, I don't think that we can actually say. And so talking about formal equality, and I think this is something that generalizes out to most other cases of the law, is we can't really talk about formal equality because the set of things that are to be equalized tends to be so underdetermined that almost anything could be described as formal equality under some description. So what you have to do, this is really where we get to the heart of the argument for my conception of generality. What you have to do is you have to turn to Yes, in some sense, inject an egalitarian idea, but not inject a sort of detailed distributive justice idea, inject the baseline idea of what are we trying to achieve by saying that the law should be equal. And I say what we're trying to achieve by saying that the law should be equal is we're trying to achieve a society that treats people as equals. We're trying to achieve what you know, egalitarian theory and political philosophy, um, sometimes called status egalitarianism, you know, associated with the work of Elizabeth Anderson, perhaps most prominently. Um, and I mean, she's just right about everything, so we could stop there. It's <laughs> actually um, astonishing how completely right Anderson is about everything. I, I just can't get over it. Um, I'm, I'm attracted to these ideas, and I've, you know, long been a fan of of Rawls and, and in particular, but, uh, but especially, like I say, these days, I, I am attracted to the idea that, that ultimately we are pursuing a political ideal, which is highly dependent on the initial conditions of, uh, distribution of capital, initial conditions of, of talents and needs and, uh, the state of society. In other words, there are all kinds of features of a society, which would tend to make me support a particular distribution or another distribution. And maybe it only comes back to a principle of non-suffering or thriving or something else. But ultimately, you know, should we 
um, sh- should we have in this in a particular context a capitation tax or a progressive income tax or if we have a progressive tax should how confiscatory should it be at the high end um, I think all of those things depend on downstream consequences which are highly dependent on the distribution of talents and needs and um, and technology and all sorts of things um, and so I guess what I'm kind of pushing back on is is there anything at the core here? You know, it, what's driving the conclusion on specific legal principles? Is it deduction from an abstract legal principle about equality, or is it a view that, um, for instance, you know, in this paper, you know, in the terms of what the role of technology should be in 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 helping collective action occur where it should where it, where it should occur? Because um, after all, I mean, corporations are a form of collective action, right? I mean, indeed, are, uh, uh, is what is driving it just a sense that. Um, uh, the law should not kick down, right? That um, that the law should be a tool to help, you know, people avoid privation at least, and and hopefully to thrive. And uh, and is that you know maybe one point the legal realists made, right? Was that is that that's always there? There's always this political and the intuition. Most, I still want yeah. to resist the idea that it's a political intuition, right? Like absolutely, the idea is the law should not kick down, but. The claim, I mean, may, maybe it's just a long-standing political intuition, right? Like, I think that this is something else that I, you know, really try and do in the book a lot, is I think that it matters for understanding what we mean by a society regulated by law, that the not-kicking-down ambition has been built into legal systems you know, this is sort of a, this is a very like undergraduate paper kind of thing to say, but it's true. <laughs> it's been built into legal systems since the dawn of history, <laughs> right? And I, like it's it's it, you know like like the Pericles' funeral oration in Thucydides' history talks about how Athenians have achieved equal justice with their legal system. I mean, it's full of it. Athenians hadn't really achieved equal justice with their legal system, although they came a lot closer than any other society of the time did, right? But I mean, it's just astonishing that we get that in, you know, the the, the, the 5th century BC. We get that in Magna Carta. We get that in the debates in Parliament surrounding the Petition of the Right. We get that a little bit in Catherine the Great, um, trying to articulate the principles underlying the sort of brief shining moment where there was a progressive vision of czarism. I mean, it, 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 it's just astonishing how these ideas run through so much of our history. And I think the reason for that is because people understand this fundamental principle going back to the power needs to be justified and that something goes wrong when we justify power on the grounds of hi i'm the person with power and i'm better than you so i say so but if we get like and so that's that's a really minimal kind of equality right like that doesn't demand you know the difference principle we don't get from legal equality to two principles of justice wrong. But what we do get, I think, is we get that the powers conferred by the law, including 
these powers to shape other people's worlds through private law have to be justifiable on terms that are consistent with seeing everybody in the society as of equal status. And we can understand that as a legal principle, as a principle based on the idea that what we do when we do law is we offer people reasons to say to somebody, and so this is in Plato too, keeping my, my Greeks right, <laughs> um, you know, what we do when we say to somebody, here are the legal rules, including the rules of private law established by contract, governing your behavior, is we say implicitly we, we have this claim and you have reasons other than just the fact that I have a gun pointed at your head to comply with them. Because you've got a gun. <laughs> Why waste your time with legal rules? Well, well, how about I, this? I yeah. How about this reason? <laughs> how about this reason for class action waivers, um, say, by a big phone company, like a cell phone company, right? Uh, and, and you touch on this in the, in, the, in the shorter paper, which we will commend to everybody to read. And we'll talk about Dr. Strange co- contract here, hopefully, in a, in a bit. Um, uh, how about this reason, though? So, um, uh, if we don't have to, if, in a world where class actions are pretty easy to commence, um, there will be a market for people to um, commence class actions and extract settlements because litigating a class action is much more expensive than settling it when there are principal agent problems, some of which, you know, you touch on that also in, in the paper. Um, and therefore, we could offer much cheaper phone service, or at least a little bit cheaper phone service, uh, if we didn't have those, if we, if we banned class actions. And... Um, and so we're going to offer contracts, which, 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 in which you basically you exchange your right to commence a class action in exchange for cheaper phone service. And you recognize, I think rightly in the paper, that this is essentially is sacrificing the unknown person who will need resort to the legal system in the future for your own satisfaction in terms of cheaper phone service now. And that seems, you know, you, you, we can talk about how that seems incompatible with kind of a, a shared civic responsibility. Um, but it does seem like we make trade-offs like that in other areas all the time, right? We do, ex- you know, there, if you dig deeper, and this is just ways of looking at reality, if you dig deeper, there are all kinds of ways that we sacrifice unknown future others um, for things now. You know, even as simple as like going to the grocery store and buying food, you don't know who's going to need that food in the future. I mean, so it's like, it seems to me that, that it's um, by focusing on class action waivers, which I like, I don't like. I mean, I think we should overturn AT&T and Concepcion, but I'm wondering if there is anything other than a kind of specific substantive ground that leads me to believe that we need that particular intervention in the law. I don't know. Am I making sense? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're absolutely making sense. And I think to a large extent, you're right. Um, so I could certainly see, and this is part of the reason that I leaked to, you know, where we were talking earlier about conception and why I leaked to publicity rather than generality as the first explanation of what's quite wrong with the AT&T versus conception is because in the abstract, sure, I could see a case for a class action for the elimination of a class action right, and I'm going to be precise here for reasons that will become clear in a moment, Um, for the elimination of a class action right that would be consistent with seeing the people who would otherwise use that right as equals. And it would be essentially that cost-saving case. You know, it's similar to the case for malpractice reform, so-called, in the tort law. Right. Um, 
So that's fine and dandy. Um, what's less fine and dandy is the way that instead of, you know, lobbying for legislation to reduce class actions, um, these companies have chosen with the facilitation of the Supreme Court to distort the principles of contract law, particularly the sort of idea of assent and a meeting of the minds that Raiden talks about, um, have distorted the principles of contract law to get there. And I think that does matter. It matters because effectively it becomes, instead of a democratically enacted legislation, there's some sense in which people have a say and it becomes imposed on individuals in inconsistent kinds of ways, again, in ways that really, you know, are not sort of transparent enough for people to genuinely understand and make some kind of decision about which legal, which procedural rights are going to be kept and which aren't. And so it's really this idea of publicity that strikes me as most in tension with this, the idea that, you know, pieces of the legal system, it's not just that a procedural right is taken away, it's that a procedural right is really just sort of quietly being snuck out the back door, and somehow there's this claim that individual people have assented to this elimination of the right, when in reality they haven't, and we all know they haven't. Um, so it seems to me, Paul, what we need is a, is a, is a salience theory of political morality or a salience. Uh, yeah. I mean, we, we need a salience principle within political morality because of course, you know, life, probably even pre-modern life, but certainly modern life in, necessarily involves lots of impositions of types of coercion of which the individual cannot be aware because of cognitive limitations. And, and indeed, maybe this turns to the paper that you've written now, right, about the um, uh, the kind of cognitive enhancement role of technology. But Yeah, well, I would want to interject because it's not even just about salience as such. It's about either salience or sort of having institutional support to substitute, right? Because here's the thing, right? social epistemology is true. You know, there are a lot of things that in my world that I cannot have individual knowledge of, but I can nonetheless have some confidence that the institutions of my world are reasonably well organized so that more or less I can be defended by social institutions from the fact that I don't have knowledge of them. You know, I'm this not is like the this is like the utter discussion of the common law earlier, right? The virtue of the common law is that it works out kinda of like it you think it should, exactly. if you had exactly. thought about it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so so the part of the problem here is that, you know, and, and this is why the, the, the difference between the democratic process and these adhesive contracts matters, is because presumably there's at least some minimal constraints in the democratic process so that people without knowledge of the law can nonetheless have some sort of sense that their interests aren't just being totally disregarded. When we're talking about these contracts, it's an adversary who's making these decisions. And so there's really, there's no underlying, there's no underlying layer of social trust, either from common law rules or from the democratic process that can allow consumers to get by without this individual knowledge. So part of the idea of these transformative legal technologies is, okay, maybe we can turn around and build them, right? You know, maybe we can build new institutions that allow ordinary people to reestablish something like 
a kind of trust even in legal arrangements that they might not have individual cognitive access to. So you take you take um, the a, a negative example that um, I guess Frank Pasquale has has highlighted. This is eviction as a service idea, right? That like oh, yeah. through, through technology. Um, uh, eviction can now be much easier, which gives additional power to people who already have capital against those who, who don't. Oh, yeah. And, and so your Doctor Strange contract idea is taking this to and kind of flipping it around. And uh, you keep pointing, Joe. Yeah, but well, I want to because I, before I forget, I want to say that um, that we had an earlier uh, conversation with Jim Gibson yeah. about contracts of adhesion and yeah. form contracts. And so one one way to wrestle with a lot of what you have been describing, both of you, um, is a recognition that we are trying to use a mechanism that was designed to uh, allow one or two people to reach a bespoke agreement about a particular thing in their lives, not a way to um, manage uh, relationships among tens of thousands of people at right. a time, right. um, which is that that's public governance stuff, not private contract stuff. It's like single so, contract and single resolution go together, but mass contract and you know, mass contract should go with mass resolution. Well, so right, so yeah. the, so Jim yeah. Gibson, the project that he was involved with, was about saying, look, contract is just the wrong way to think about all of this. These aren't contracts; they're they're regulatory choices in uh, that involve masses of citizens and masses of commercial actors. And so they need to be approached in a fundamentally different way. This, uh, you know, what Paul was talking about for the, before about making a mockery of the notion of consent and a meeting of the minds. Well, one thing you could do is decide, well, okay, let's stop trying to have that conversation because this is obviously not about contract. It's about something else. That's fine. Yeah. That's the Jim Gibson conversation. You guys n- now we're talking about, okay, how could we continue to have a contract conversation, but get it to scale? On both sides of the equation, um, which is still keeping it within contract, but but using technology to get yeah. collective action on a fair basis. And this is Doctor Strange contract, right? Using yeah. technology to get because an individual consumer who says, "You know what? I am not going to uh, tolerate a class action waiver, or I will not tolerate a a fifty percent <laughs> yeah. increase in my cable bill." Yeah, and I'm going to take my business yeah. elsewhere. And yeah, they know, get to sit in a dark room with no phone, no TV, <laughs> right. no internet. Um, and or, you know, or even if you shop, like maybe you could shop around. Maybe you could, but it's like a pain in the butt. Like you know. To me, you know, what freedom is, is not having to worry about all kinds of crap you don't want to worry about, right? And um, and, and truly, like, the lack of freedom. Authoritarianism is all about having having a cognitive load from all kinds of things that you shouldn't have to worry about, right? Yeah. Um, so, uh, so even if I could shop around and find a non-class action waiver cable company, like, yes, like uh, I got to make a phone call to my cable company. I got to talk to a retention specialist. Then I have to, <laughs> then I've got to talk to the new phone company and, and work through their masses of BS to figure out like what is a good deal and try to weigh, th- you know, it's, it's really, really hard. Right. Um, and so the, the Dr. Strange contract idea is, you know what, what if we set the terms? Like I, like, as you say, you can't skywrite your offers to uh, Comcast <laughs> or to Cox Cable or Charter or one of these entities, right? I mean, you can't, there's no way to like get the CEO at the table. But what if there were? Like, what if we could get 
a million customers to say, you know, we'll stick with you, but only if you agree to these terms. Well, you know, it's, you know, you can't do it through email forwards alone, <laughs> amassing a bunch of people to like storm the thing and demand a, you know, with a contract. But but what you could do, right, what you could do, this is what you say, and I, it'd be interesting to hear examples of, of this and, and to see if someone actually does this, but you could get a bunch of people to pre-commit like in a, um, in, in a Kickstarter way. Like if we reach a million people, then we will present a take it or leave it offer, or at least a, 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 a an offer of a negotiation, maybe with some some terms in there. But uh, that um, uh, to this cable company, and if they don't agree to it, we will all automatically end our service uh, together. Yeah. So it's it's like forming a kind of not a labor union, but a consumer union. But mm. using technology to facilitate that collective action. Um, do, so do I have the Doctor Strange? I, I, I kind of wanted to open with this because exactly I thought if we open with Doctor Strange contract, then you know we'd have our listeners hooked. Instead, we <laughs> we open with Fuller and a discussion of political philosophy, which I think is just as good uh, for me. Um, but but do I have the Doctor Strange contract uh, idea down? You absolutely do, and I'm glad we open with, with with philosophy rather than with Doctor Strange contract because as much as I love Doctor Strange contract, I know that. Uh, <laughs> Practical barriers to implementing Doctor Strange contracts would still be just astonishingly high. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, you have it right. It, it, that you, you've got. I, I have nothing to add to your description, your abstract description of the idea. So it's like, I mean, I guess a quick way of thinking about it, it really is. It's like Kickstarter for um, yeah uh, for, for demands. Kickstarter for demands. I did Kickstarter in there at some point. I think that certainly Kickstarter was on the top of my mind when I wrote that. So if the insight is that um, collective action, uh, group action is required uh, in modern life to bring a reasonably level playing field to large groups of consumers, renters, others who don't have all the advantages of, um, of power and great wealth, um, then things like the class action mechanism, things like uh, a, a legal technology that allowed you to work uh, as a, to quickly assemble uh, and work as a group uh, in a way that, and, and in, as you describe in the paper, these are threats you wouldn't actually ever have to carry through, right? The exactly. whole point They're would be, they, yeah, they, yeah, they would be set up in such a way that the mere existence of the threat prevents uh, the need to carry through on it. Um, but that, that, if that's the context in which we find ourselves, where these, these group actions need to be created, um, I think you also recognize in the paper, and maybe it's worth talking through a little bit more, that, of course, um, the, <laughs> you know, Power and wealth never rest, right? Yeah. So, so they will yeah. respond to an effort to um, gather collective and uh, or facilitate collective group action on behalf of those with with less means, less power. Um, so, w- w- will there be? Ca- can there be collective action that that is in the end ultimately successful? Well, so I think even starting the fight would change the terms of the negotiation radically, right? So, you know, we'll, we'll give you an example of power never sleeping, right? It's a very trivial example. Um, one of the things that a coder friend said to me when I was talking through this idea with people was, like, you basically, 
in what universe do you imagine that, you know, assuming that Comcast has an API allowing you to automatically cancel your account, that that would stick around after somebody cooked up Doctor Strange contract? And of course it wouldn't, right? Like, they would turn around and try and impose every technical barrier, every legal barrier possible in order to... Um, prevent that but his yeah but he's, he's not imagining he's not imagining like the google ai you know which they finally demonstrated for journalists did you see this the the google ai <laughs> that will will make phone calls and and speak in a natural tone of voice oh, including yeah. the ums and ahs i love that it's so i want to inflict that as a person who's been in a shouting match personally right with a cable company that's <laughs> actually i have i want to show you I, I feel like you guys should post a link to this with the podcast i've written i have written the, the most like horrifying demand letter that anybody's ever written to a cable so here's here's an, here's an idea for you paul a podcast <laughs> called gouda chowda <laughs> which is uh which is maybe weekly maybe monthly i don't know how often you get in these fights but i do know you get in some uh, uh either recordings of these calls or or dramatic readings of your demand letters i think you know people would tune in for like it would be a way of channeling our our, our collective frustration yeah with, I don't with know. That, I don't know that it could sustain a podcast. It certainly could sustain a Tumblr. I mean, the Gouda Chowda <laughs> Tumblr would be awesome, or a miniseries, like an oh, '80s miniseries yeah. of like you know oh, Paul's yeah. adventures with United Airlines and various cable companies. Uh, something like you could imagine an AI, which because I was thinking, well, maybe you just call an aid, you get an agent like this group of a million people. Could, you know, someone would be a lawyer who would call and, and cancel on behalf of all million. But then they would say, well, you have to have the individual things, and they'd have to keep track of a million different codes to, you know, mm-hmm. or you know, you can't do that. Uh, but what oh, you yeah. could do is get a Google AI, which call, you know, and suddenly we've got, and maybe they'll have AIs as their retention specialists, and we'll have these like AIs talking to each other in natu- <laughs> with all with all the ums and ahs and everything else. Right, oh, uh, trying God, to cancel cable. Totally Can you imagine? It would be yeah. like it would end like war games with Joshua. Like the only way is not to play because you know you'd have the AI right. retention specialist, which is geared up to resist the AI cancel bot. <laughs> and I think there's see what's what's ve- this is very funny, and at the same time it's it's dispiriting <laughs> that, that um, because because what it sets up and and I guess it, maybe Frank would say some of this if he were here um, a sort of it sort of sets up an arms race idea that yes. as you've just as you just invoked in a way that that um, and and I know that um, part part of winning an arms race is starting with a bigger pot of dough capital right but here's so, the thing right so I, I don't mind the arms race relative to the current situation right because relative to the current situation. What's happening is people are just getting surprised. You know, they're waking up one morning, they're finding that some edge case has applied to them, and then, you know, they're calling some corporation and saying, you know, hey, can you let me out of my gym contract because I've got to move. And then the corporation says, well, you know, screw you. It turns out that there's this tiny provision that says that you have to have sent us a letter by registered mail six months ago and you know that has to come with like a three goats and a llama and you know now you owe us ten thousand dollars and we're sending you to prison right i mean yeah, they're having at least the fight be transparent is a massive improvement to my mind and that's you know i think this is always, you know, this is going to be the muddling through versus transformation idea all over again, right? Because I think, you know, a, a basic solution to some of our biggest problems right now is for more people to have more money, 
that's the upshot, right? Which yeah. is like, you know, just more, more money and, um, and less money for the very wealthy. Like they don't need all the money. Uh, and, and so part of this is, you know, healthcare, like if, if people had, um, free healthcare and, um, and some basic level of subsistence, then they could, they would have the power to turn down jobs and tell the boss to screw off if the boss is like, and it, it, along these same lines, I've often thought that like the political culture, like if you want to take the barometer of it or you want to see like how it's leaning, it's like, is average person, do they, are they more pissed off by their jerk boss or the, um, or the jerk school teacher? Like who's more the object of their ire, right? Is it, is it the school teacher that they think is, oh, I'm so glad to be done with them? Or is it the boss that they hate more? Uh, and, and if it's the boss they hate more, they're more likely to lean like Democrat, right, or or socialist, right. And if it's the school teacher, right, then that. But and and so the whole political fight, it seems to me, is getting people either more pissed off at the boss or the school teacher. Well, I don't want to get. I, I I don't want to live in anger, but um, it's. It, I just feel like maybe another way to phrase this could be that that if you're really that that really vindicating the rule of law, you get more mileage with with you know effective advocacy that brings about single payer and universal basic income than you do right. ad- advocating for various legal principles, legal rules, blah, blah, blah. Like if you really have this, de- if, if you really achieve a depth of understanding about, about the rule of law along the lines as Paul has described it, and you are convinced that that's the, the appropriate goal, um, then, um, uh, just giving more resources to more people, having resources more widely and and uh, effectively distributed, um, is critically important. Well, it's and it's a way to short circuit. What I, I was going to connect this back to what we'd said before, because um, part of like I think engineering a, um, a a movement for better redistribution, better tools for consumers, better uh, collective working rights um, is is to help people to see the connection of the boss to the state, right? That, that, yeah. that, that the, the boss is facilitated, like the jerk boss, right? Why, why, do, why is the boss such a jerk? Because they can be, you have no alternative. It breeds this kind of cycle of resentment and everything else. And uh, why is this? Why do they have all this power? Well, unequal distribution of capital. Um, uh, because if there were an equal, you would never have a jerk boss because you would leave as soon as they were a jerk, right? <laughs> like the reason you can't leave, right? The reason you have this, feeling right is is because you don't have um uh, credible alternatives and in a way we're circling back to exactly to the idea that the state power and private power and the and the and the line between them and how permeable it is and how to describe where it is and how it moves and back and forth over time is a really really important it's a a web of coercive relationships on top of which we layer intuitions about responsibility and types of governance, right? And and we layer this kind of private layer on top of corporations and private employer, employers, and we layer a certain thing, uh, a certain other set of intuitions on top of of what we call governmental institutions. But I, you know, and and that's necess- like that we live in a web of coercions is just that's the price of civilization. There's nothing inherently wrong with living in a web of coercion, right? But the the real trick is to get people not to see it that way. And this is the old crit point, right? Is is to get people to exactly. see some of the web of coercion as not coercion at all, right? And other parts of the web of coercion is very coercive and dangerous, right? And that's the, the you know, that's that's the, the libertarian point of view, right? It's the state coercive part of the web, which is true coercion, and the other part, which is not coercion at exactly. all. Exactly. So there was sort of 
two traditional strategies on behalf of progressives, right? And I really wanted to work with both of them. You know, traditional strategy number one is to reveal how a lot of things that the state doesn't do that are done by private people are also coercive. But traditional strategy number two, and it's the one that we don't pay enough attention to, is to point out, even from the internal perspective of libertarians, how oftentimes these private forms of coercion depend upon state coercion. You know, I think of the, my favorite example recently is there's this wonderful literature pushed forward by historians and critical race scholars that have become really mainstream now to the point where it's going to sound like a boring example, but it wasn't a while ago about how the government was culpable in all of the so-called private segregation um, surrounding the end of the Jim Crow era, you know, the sort of backlash segregation after Brown versus Board of Education and so forth. Um, there's a ton of work now tracing that to government policies, both before and after Brown, even though it supposedly just looks like private discrimination. And that work is so valuable because it does capture the role of state power in these supposedly, you know, private free choice hierarchical relationships. Mm. Um, so what else have we not asked you about that we should have asked you about with respect to this paper, just because we, we can't take unlimited amounts of your time as, as fun as that would be. We lack the uh, coercive power to do so. <laughs> <laughs> well, also my, my AirPods are running out of battery. They've started beeping at me. So I might oh boy. Just disappear at some point. <laughs> um, but the other thing I, I really like, the, 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 I, I want to actually talk about legal tech as legal tech for a second, because I think that the Frank Pascal point that I talk about toward the beginning of the paper doesn't get quite enough attention, right? So we've got these people right now um, creating legal technology where sort of the, the, the dominant idea is legal services are too damn expensive, which they are. This is like LegalZoom and other things like that, right? Yeah. yeah, like legal services are too damn expensive, lower the cost of getting legal services, and then there you go. We've somehow done something good in the world. But I think that the eviction as a service idea um, really highlights what's wrong with that. And I would actually go so far as to say, sort of as an egalitarian, and this isn't a rule of law person position now, this is just a flat out like commie position. Um, but as an egalitarian, I think that there are some situations where maybe we ought to think twice before making it easier for people to access legal services, especially when the benefit of that easiness all falls on behalf of the powerful. So I think about like the eviction as a service, Frank's thing is so good because it so well jibes with what my experience was as a legal aid lawyer. Um, I sort of want to go in a riff about that for a second because it's something that I've been thinking about is like as a legal aid lawyer, the best thing is to do a landlord-tenant case. Like, it is the most satisfying, at least it was for me, the most satisfying way of doing legal aid practice. And the reason is because, you know, a lot of these slumlords that really, like, horrifically oppress poor tenants, 
have lawyers either. And so invariably they break like 10 laws, you know? <laughs> so when the client actually gets in the door of the legal aid office, it's just, it's wonderful. It's like you can beat the landlord like a gong. You know, you walk into court and be like, well, your honor, you know, they changed the locks and they shut off the utilities and the notice was supposed to be 30 days and they gave five. And, you know, I'd like you to undo this eviction and give my clients a few thousand dollars for their time. And the court says, yeah, here you go. Um, it's just wonderful. You know, legal aid lawyers win so few cases because of the structural inequalities that they have to deal with. Mm -hmm. um, just being able to walk in and like beat somebody evil on behalf of somebody innocent is wonderful. Uh, but the reason for that is fundamentally because the landlords don't have legal services, right? Like if the landlords had legal services, if somebody were telling them, okay, here's what you need to do to evict the tenant and get them out quickly, if we made it cheap enough that the slumlords did that, well, it turns out the substantive legal rights and the underlying inequalities are still vastly in the slumlord's favor. And so in an unequal society in which we live, making legal advice really, really cheap just means that the slumlords stop doing illegal evictions and start doing legal evictions, and then they work. Um, mm. I mean, that's awful. Um, and so I really just want to emphasize that. Like, this, this is, again, why I think that Frank's example of eviction as a service was just so brilliant. So there, there's, a, there's like, a, there, there's like a, a paper idea for, like, you know, the virtues of unsophisticated capital. Because, the, yeah. you know, the, 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 the story you tell is one of, uh, of typical kind of labor versus capital, but where um, uncharacteristically... Uh, the rule of law uh, allows the labor to defeat capital on a on a one on one basis, not even through a union or something else, but just on a one on one basis in a pretty convincing way. And the reason it does so is because in this particular case, the capital owners are unsophisticated, at least as yeah. to, as to their own business, actually, which is interesting. Um, and so, and, and so, the argument you're making is that there's actually a virtue in their being unsophisticated because it is a it is a mild form of redistribution that we would lose otherwise. And eviction is a source of, you know, uh, uh, it, it can create a whole downward spiral and is a source of immense suffering, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah. It's curious. It's interesting. I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, and it's, of course, it's only good in our in a, in a unequal social context. Like if we had an equal world, or at least, you know, substantially more equality, then the point that I just made would go away. Right. Because we wouldn't have, obviously, a class of tenants who are living so precariously that it turns out that they have to break landlord tenant law just to get by. You know, sometimes if you're poor, you have to pay the rent a little late. Like that's a reality of being poor in our society. It's an unjust reality. You know, if we made it go away then it would be great if landlords had more legal services because the only people they'd be using them against would be people who genuinely ought to have them used against them. But in a grossly unequal society, you know, when we make claims about how legal services should be distributed, we have to take into account 
that underlying gross inequality that makes it much easier for some people rather than others to make effective use of legal services. I have to say it is the weirdest redistributive tax I think I've ever considered. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know quite how I feel about it. I mean, because because one role of good of good lawyering would be that increased compliance by landlords, like you know, especially as to conditions and and notice and other things, and those might actually be good things. Um, but but what you describe again is this tax that that if the landlord, because of ignorance and stupidity, happens to try to um, evict a a tenant in a in a wrong way, and the client contacts legal aid, then perhaps there'll be a fine, you know, they'll get to stay in the place and, and, and maybe pay, uh, pay up, but there'll also be a, a fine attached or at least some kind of damages. Yeah. And that's a form of redistributive tax, but it's a very yeah, weird one. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, it's a very weird one because it's like, you know, given that we're about as far as possible from an ideal world, like sort of, it's like a Hunger Games kind of a thing, right? Like how much can we scratch out of the awful, awful situation, so at least we can get something from it. Um, but given that, yeah, poor tenants are in an awful, awful situation, um, let's, you know, not make it harder for them to scratch out something good out of it occasionally. Well, I don't know a happier note on which to end than the invocation of the Hunger Games. So <laughs> I think we're just going to have to call it there. <laughs> Thanks, thanks so much, Paul. It was great to finally talk to you um, yeah, live for the first time. So this was great. Thanks again. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. I'll hit stop.